This podcast is a Tucker Media production. For more information, head to tuckermedia.com.au. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Media Mates podcast. My name's Ralph Tucker. Each week I'll chat to somebody I've met from my career in and around the media industry. All of them have such great stories to tell. I'm not Michael Parkinson or Andrew Denton, but I do enjoy chatting to interesting media people about where they've been, where they're headed next, and everything else in between. My guest today is Mark Levy from 2GB. Mark has been working in Sydney media for over a decade, firstly at Sky Racing and now at 2GB and Macquarie Media. He chats about how fixing a computer led to his start at Sky, where he gets his work ethic from, and how he deals with narcs on Twitter. Mark's always up for a chat, so I really hope you enjoy his story. Mark Levy, welcome to the Media Mates podcast. What a great setting we have here, Ralphie. We've got poker machines, uh, barmaid Betty getting the feature on poker machine four. We've got the 747 from Los Angeles coming into Sydney Airport over the top and Gavin Carmody sitting to our right. What a load of rubbish he was talking about on that last podcast. He is one of the great self-promoters. See, this is called, a, this is called payback, Carmody, but Ralphie, good to be with you, champion. We strike you on a rare day off. You seem to be doing just about everything at 2GB these days, whether it be hosting afternoon programs, hosting sport programs, cleaning the toilets, whatever the case may be. I'm very grateful that we've actually got you on a day off because you seem to be the hardest working man in radio. Oh, thank you, mate. It's um, Well, one thing I've learnt in my... What, what have I been in? Nine and a half years I've been doing it now in, in radio. One thing I've learned is you've got to work hard to get anywhere in life. And uh, I've learned from people like Ray Hadley and Andrew Moore, and they're two of the hardest pe- working people I know in radio. So uh, I le- I've learned from the best, and I just keep getting given these wonderful opportunities. And when you say no, somebody else gets the chance to do it. So I don't say no, I say yes, and I do it to the best of my ability. Now talk to me about your fascination in media. Where did that come from? Were you one of these kids that were listening to a radio at home? Did you always want to pursue a career in media? What was it that led you down that path? I sort of fell into it, to be honest. I, uh, I always wanted to be a paramedic, as in a, uh, an ambulance officer. And a <laughs> funny story, I, I, went to, um, I went to a mate's party and a mate of mine was violently ill and started vomiting at, uh, at the party, to which I started vomiting as well. And I thought, well, I can't be a paramedic if it's the way, this is the way it's going to happen. And then got a job at the races, carrying money around and the like, and um, knocked on the door of Ian Craig. I had to go up and fix one of his computers one day, and I said, oh, wow, binoculars, microphones, you're the voice I hear calling the races on track. How do I do what you do? And that sort of just uh, led to me having a career in the media. So talk to me about that advice. What advice did Ian Craig give you as a young fellow going up there to fix his computer? I can't well, imagine you fixing anything, to be well, quite I honest with you. I couldn't, and uh, I, I got sent up there, and at the old Ramwick, the old QE2 grandstand, you'd go up these Movators. So oh, I love those. You'd go up one, and then you'd go up the other one, past God's waiting room, and then you'd go up to the broadcast boxes, and you'd walk basically through the old dining rooms, you'd go through a door, up some metal stairs, over the roof... And then there's all these doors. And I knocked on the door and I just hear this, come in. I open the door and there's Ian Craig, fresh with the comb over. He won't mind me saying that. He's got one of the great comb overs that you've ever seen. And uh, he said, Marcus, lovely to meet you. Marcus. I'm having- Marcus, my boy, lovely to meet you, as he that now it still calls me. So he said, um, can you fix this computer where he gets all the tote dividends and the like? So I managed to fix it all up and said, do you mind if I sit up here and watch you call a race? 
And then I watched him call the race, fascinated by it, and I said, how do I do what you do? And he said, well, Marcus, my boy, only a few people can do this. I can't teach you how to do it. Either you can do it or you can't. There's some binoculars. There's a tape recorder. Go down to the end of the broadcast boxes. There's a spare one there for you and give it a go. So I had a crack. I had a crack. I wasn't very good. And he said, you've got a bit of ability, my boy. So I kept going and I wasn't very good. And then that sort of led to a a job at Sky Channel. This is blowing my mind. To begin with, you've got the great Ian Craig giving you advice on how to call races and sending you down the the hallway. What's that like when you, at that stage, I'm assuming you had no inclination in in doing that that kind of thing. What was what was that like, and how bad were the original tapes that you were recording? I, I've still got them somewhere, and uh, it's basically a prepubescent Levy attempting to call races, which wasn't very good. Um, but it, it was amazing. I mean, I, I started working at the races because I didn't want to work at Macca's and earn you know twelve dollars fifty an hour. And I was, I was working on course getting paid $30 an hour, just taking around money to the, the little ladies that work on the tape and fixing these little, you know, machines, which virtually what your PC bloke tells you, turn it off, turn it back on again, and they work. Um, so I was doing that. And then having met a bloke by the name of Ian Craig, went home, told my mum and dad, and mum and dad were saying, you are not getting a job in racing. We do not want you involved with betting, blah, 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 blah. Were they anti-gambling? Well, they're very anti-gambling, but I just live by the motto, the more you bet, the more you win. So... That's how I've developed uh, life. It doesn't always work that way, but you're always in it to win it. But it was amazing. And then um, to, to work in racing for however many years I did that, met some wonderful people, lived with a couple of jockeys, met some great trainers, some people with a lot of money, and then it just spiralled out of control. It was fantastic. Talk to me about that progression then, okay? You're doing the tapes and then Ian Craig's giving you advice and then all of a sudden – you end up at, at Sky Racing. So I'd imagine you didn't go to university. It was all hands-on work that, yeah. you, that you had to do and pretty much learning on the job. What was that initial transition like for you, knowing, hey, there could be something to this, there could be a career that I could forge out of this? What was that like? It was amazing. And um, I, I was lucky to – I, I, I didn't, really didn't have to finish the HSC and I, I probably shouldn't have finished it. I only just passed and never went into university for good reason because I'm not very bright, as most people that know me would attest to. Shut up, Carmody. Um, and, yeah, Sky Channel offered me a job. I was just in the – there was a little dark room and you do the numbers in running. You're a punter, Ralphie. You'd see it up on the screen, the numbers in running and the little box that pops up after the race that shows you the dividends and first, second and third. Started doing that. Three months later, Rod Galagos, who was one of the greatest bosses I think I ever had, uh, one of the great racing riders, he said, we've got to get you out of that. We'll put you into producing caper. And started producing people like Andrew Bensley, Tony Brassel, uh, got a country racing show off the ground, up and running, got to travel around Australia doing some fantastic stories, met, uh, you know, the, the lifeblood of racing. And um, I thought, I honestly thought to myself at that point, I'd be in racing for the rest of my, my life. I had the racing bug and I just absolutely fell in love with the sport of kings. So... All of that's happening and you, you're enjoying that kind of thing and you're working with some people that are, are really knowledgeable. What's that like? What do you pick up in terms of broadcast television, racing and combining them to produce a product which is on Sky? What were the main things that you sort of took out of just, I guess, observing and, and watching these guys that have been doing it for 100 years? I think work ethic's the main thing, putting in the hours. I mean, we get so many people that come into 2GB now that, you know, it gets to five o'clock and they say, oh, well, it's five o'clock, can I go? But the job's not done. I mean, if you've got another two hours to do, you sit there and you work. And I think that's where a lot of people have, have lost have lost that work, at, work ethic. And I mean, no disrespect to the younger members of the community these days, but I just don't think they have the same 
sort of ethic that you and I had, Ralphie, when we first started in the media. I mean, if we got told by somebody to do a job, you'd do it until it was finished. So if that meant you were sitting there till 9.30 at night, you did it, and then you got the opportunities that presented. Whereas at, at Sky Racing, you know, I, I was under... And there was a lot of people at Sky that were very tough. There are a few people that told it as it, as it were. And if you didn't do the job to their satisfaction, you'd, you'd cop a spray. So I learned the hard way, and, and I learned from my mistakes, and I, I learned I got a great grounding in television. I got a great grounding in the media, how to deal with people. Because it, the bit about racing, you meet you meet rich people, you meet people who've got their last five dollars on a horse, and you meet people in between that just enjoy a social day out. And I think it's it's held me in good stead doing what I do now, having to interview sports people, having to interview politicians, and all that sort of thing. It's good fun. So pursuing the sporting side of things and having to look at how people present and do that kind of thing. Did you ever have an inkling that you could be the guy, like as in the one that was going to be not behind the scenes but be the presenter? No, no, because there was a there was an exec- executive producer at Sky Racing. I won't name this person, but uh, that person told me that, um, you know, I, she used to walk in, uh, I'd be sitting there doing my job in a room full of producers. She'd ignore me. She'd say hello to everybody else, made me feel as if I was a bit of a nothing. Um, and I, mate, to be honest, I, I would put it down as bullying. Not that I'd ever mean to say that I was bullied or anything, but it, it felt like a form of bullying. Passive aggressive. Passive aggressive, yeah. And, and that made me stronger, I think. Uh, because back when I had my first full time job, I was, you know, a bit of a quiet kid, just did, did what I was doing. This was a full time job at 17. Um, and I, I think that person has, has toughened me up. And I still see this person. And, you know, they're always saying, oh, you know, asking me for favours and the like. And I just don't have respect for people like that. I, I respect people that help you along the journey and uh, I, I just say to people like that, good riddance, goodbye and get out of my life. And um, I use that, I turn that into a positive and, and have um, built a lot of confidence and sometimes I just tell it how it is. A lot of my friends say that, you know, you're a little bit harsh sometimes but I think I just haven't got time for people that are, are troublemakers and people that, that um, you know, aren't as genuine as you and I, Ralphie. Given that motivation, I mean, it sounds as if it was a driving force for you to actually prove yourself as a, a competent, well, first of all, producer, and now you've gone on to, to do other things. What was that like to have that somebody telling you that you couldn't do something and then it, it sounds as though it sort of lit a fire under you that to prove that person wrong? Well, I'm not sort of one of these people that sits on their hands and, you know, waits for things to happen. I thought, well, you know, if, if you don't want me here, I'll, I'll go and find something else to do and... I was enjoying my racing stuff and I did a lot of travelling through country Queensland and getting on the Bundy and Rums after country race meetings after doing a story, which was great fun. Can't tell too many of those stories on this podcast, Ralphie. But, um, yeah, it, it did It did light the fire and it did uh, fuel the desire to, to go on and do bigger and better things. And I got a phone call from Michelle Kieran, uh, who was doing the sport at 2GB, and this was after a long stint at Sky, and she said, why don't you come and do some part-time work in here. Um, Ray Hadley has heard, heard your voice and Richard Freeman has suggested uh, you to me. So I said, oh, why not? So I found myself in the GB newsroom doing some casual sports shifts. From my memory, it was cricket first up that you had to do. You had to come in and, and do those uh, cricket reports over a certain summer, getting in there and, and doing something that was, I guess, completely foreign to you. I mean, you'd had the, the TV experience, but it's a completely different beast radio and obviously yeah. it involves having to get your voice out there and being accurate and all of those things. What was that like for you to make that transition from Sky Racing, which, in all fairness, can be a little bit of an insular 
sort of place to work because it's focused purely on racing. Yeah, you know, there's yeah. three codes of racing, but it's purely focused on that. Whereas when you go into radio, you kind of got to be a little bit more broader in your, your skill range. Yeah, you're right. And that was probably the big challenge I had is having to, because I was always taught by these great journos at Sky Racing to let the pictures do the talking in television. Whereas I come to radio and I have to be so descriptive with my language and with my writing and the like. And I think that was the big challenge when I first started at 2GB. And I learned from some great journos at 2GB and, and they really guided me in the right direction. But it was amazing coming to radio where you're just yourself having to turn your microphone on, having to write your scripts, having to sit there in a little studio and, and report on the cricket what you're seeing on the television, on the television, having come from a control room where when I was putting together shows like Off the Beaten Track, which we did, I think, really, really well, we, I was dealing with the graphics department. I was dealing with a director, director's assistant, vision switcher, audio director, host, um, you know, OB like van at the location where I wanted wide shots for the opening montage for the show. From the change of doing that to go to radio when I'm just me on my own with having to push my own microphone on, I thought, wow, what have I got myself into here? And the thing that I I've, I've love about radio is the immediacy. Like I'd be working, I'd be given four days to put together a show and go out and do stories and, you know, I'd usually, because I'm a bit of a, a worker, I'd, I'd have it done in a day and a half. So I'd sit there twiddling my thumbs thinking, well, what am I going to do now? Whereas radio, I thought, how good's this? You know, something's happening now and the next news bulletin, I've got to have it all up to date, descriptive and painting a picture for the listeners. And, and I think that's where I fell in love with radio. It seems as though you came from a, a different way because, I mean, obviously we spoke to Gavin in the podcast prior to this that he was radio to TV, your TV to radio. Some so, would say it's a backward step, but uh, I think it was a step up. Well, I actually think that, like, it's all about finding your niche, right? Mm. It's all about finding where your tribe is, where you feel comfortable, okay? But, um, Ralphie, you, you know what? I, I, and this is one thing that I, I really wanted to say on the podcast when you invited me on, and I appreciate that. I just think there's so much – there's so there's, there's this love affair, love affair with television. You know, young people want to see themselves on television and the like, and I see so many young people that come into our newsroom at 2GB <laughs> or come, come in with me on the weekends and sit on the football or sit on a sports show or whatever – and you say to them at the end, oh, did you enjoy that? Well, I had a prominent NRL referee, no names mentioned, because he wants to remain anonymous. He, he probably shouldn't have done it. But he came in on the weekend and he said, I absolutely love this. How good is how good is it the fact that you can say something, you can have an opinion, and then, you know, little Joe from Blacktown can ring up and either agree or disagree with you? And I said, well, that's one thing. And, and having worked with Erin Mullen more recently on, on the Saturday program on on 2GB, she says the same thing. You know, she sits there at 6 o'clock next to Peter Overton reading the sports news, looking down the barrel of a camera, but she's she's not really interacting with her audience. She's not she's not getting feedback. She's not being told, hey, that was a great story, hey, that isn't. Whereas on radio, she'll say something, and if she, she says something stupid, the board goes into meltdown or wanting to take her on. And, and I think that's where a lot of people need to realise how good radio is, and all these all these numbskulls that say, "Oh, radios, radios a dying industry." I'm sorry. Maybe the FM stations might be a dying breed, but AM radio will live long, long, long into the future because AM radio does so much for the public. AM radio gives people a voice. AM radio gives people a reason to ring up and vent their concerns with not only society but a certain issue that's in the media. And I, I think talkback radio has got a massive future. Well, if you even look at the instances of what happened, the tragic events that happened in, in Melbourne last week, when we, we, we sort of look at, at that, 
I'd imagine not having been in Melbourne at that particular time, but I imagine talkback radio would have gone nuts from, I guess, trying to find people that were actually on the scene, being able to, to tell that story, to paint that picture, like you said. I mean, social media has sort of come into a, a degree, but when I'm driving in the car, I can't access my yep. phone, I can't see my Twitter feed or I can't see my Facebook feed, but I can turn the radio on and the radio can tell me exactly what's happening at that time. I don't have a TV in my in my uh, car, yeah. so it, it, it really will still be that place to go when there is tragic circumstances, when there is a bushfire, when there is a flood. It'll be your go-to place, and I think that you're right in what you say, is that it has that advantage over these other mediums while, you know, TV has the glitz and glamour. Right? And, and, and I, mean, no, I mean, no disrespect to our colleagues that work in FM radio stations, but they've got their niche audience, you know. There's only so many times you can play Justin Bieber's new song or Lady Gaga's new song or whatever her name is. But, you know, like, and, and a lot of my mates are now listening to 2GB and, and 2UE Talking Lifestyle or, or whatever, and they're saying, you know, if you asked me 10 years ago would I ever be listening to you gibbering away on the radio, I'd say no. Whereas they now say to me, I love it. I just absolutely love it because, you know, we've got our iPad if we, or iPod. If we want to listen to tunes, we can. But 2GB and Talkback Radio provides updates with traffic, provides the news, provides the weather, the breaking news. You spoke about Melbourne. I, I mean, I have just been given the opportunity to fill in for Chris Smith on the afternoon show and having to do rolling coverage of, a, of an incident like that for the first time, I, I thought to myself, how do I do this? But you sort of just go into autopilot. And given, given the background in sport and, and having to do commentary and, and describe what you're seeing, that held me in good stead, I think, because when the vision came through on Sky News of, of the bloke doing burnouts yeah. in, that, in, in that intersection and then the vision from the convenience store when I vividly remember the, the little boy in the red shirt with a black backpack and a, and a gentleman grabs him by the backpack and gets him out of the way. I mean, having to describe that to the listeners, I had a couple of mates who did detectives that messaged me that night saying it feels like we've already seen this vision because of how you described it, and and I think and I got a I got a a lot out of them saying that because it, it felt like I was doing a service to the community, having to talk about what was going on in Melbourne, and also um, that that low life David Linehelm, the senator, who thought fifteen minutes after the incident to put up a very disrespectful post, and that sparked outrage in the community, and and I, and I think that's our job, that's our job to do. And I hope the listeners enjoyed it. We'll touch on a couple of things there that you you, you mentioned, and we'll, we'll we'll unpack those. How are we going, Ralphie? I feel like I'm gibbering. No, no, no. There's no gibbering here on this podcast. It's all of the the highest quality. You're um, doing a wonderful job with your questions, by oh, the way, mate, too. Oh, Alan Jones esque. Yeah, I don't know about that. Well, I often say that I'm not Michael Parkinson or Andrew Denton, but <laughs> I'll give it a good crack. But um, what you sort of described there is one of the the great things that I think that. You, having forged your career thus far in, in the sporting field, has allowed you to sort of cross across to a more general talk nature. And I think that, that sporting broadcasters in particular are able to do that probably better than, than most because they're able to have this ability to constantly talk and describe what's happening. So, you know, people like Ray Hadley that are able to just constantly describe what's in front of them, it's transient from describing like a race or if they're describing an NRL game or whatever. 
it's the same principles, but just applied differently. So, and, and I think, do you feel that that is something yeah. that has allowed you to cross the divide, as it were, between being sport guy and being general news guy? Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think that's a, a fair assessment. And you've got to understand too, having worked on the unique problem program that is the continuous call team, where sometimes you're sitting in a studio with a couple of games of football to call. Apart from that. 10 hours of absolute rubbish to talk about. The only thing that you write is a one-page opener to make sure that you've got all the facts and figures from the night before's game so you don't miss them. After that, it's just do your best for 10 hours, gibbering and talking about whatever, whether it be, you know, the sex of capsicums to, you know, why what causes cracked heels. And then to, 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 refor- to go from that to an afternoon show where you've got breaking news and interviews and that sort of thing, it's refreshing. And then you look to your producers that are bringing in information and scripts and interviews and all these people to talk to, you think, wow, this is unbelievable. I've got something to talk about rather than just jibber. Another thing that has been quite evident so far in what we've been talking about is work ethic, and that's an important part of anyone's job, but... More particularly, if you're looking to go down the the path of forging a career in sport, you have to have the ability and the flexibility to work Mm. on weekends. You can't just say, well, I'm not going to turn up on Saturday or Sunday. Well, I'm sorry, but sport's generally on the weekend, so you have to work. And I think that's a bit of a problem with the younger generation or the generation below us, that they're not willing to work on a weekend. So obviously you put your hand up for that pretty much early on Ralph, and recognised that that was what you had to do to get your career going. It drives me up the wall when, when we get people that come in that have studied, you know, university and they want to be a sports broadcaster, they want to follow in the footsteps of Ray Hadley and all these different people and they come in to us and the first thing I say, well, mate, there's no point you're working Monday to Friday. Why don't you come in and work on, on Saturday, Sunday, come to the football, come to the cricket, whatever. Oh, and I can't, I can't do that. Why? Oh, Friday night I've got a mate's birthday. Saturday, got to play cricket. Sunday, uh, oh, Sunday I'll, I'll probably just be recovering. What do you think happens on the weekend? Sport. If you want to be a sports broadcaster, you work weekends. I mean, have they got rocks in their head, these young people? I mean, seriously. I mean, it's just common sense. And, and the reason it riles me up is because I put in so many hours to get to where I am in my career and I look at some of the laziness that is creeping into society and some of the young people that want to do what you and I have done, Ralphie, and I think, where has it come from? You work hard, you get to where you want to want to be by working hard, putting in the hours and learning from, from people like Ray, like Andrew Moore, who I had the pleasure of working with for so many years. And, and I, that's the reason why I, I, I think I work so hard, because of people like Ray and Andrew, because I saw the hours they put in to be the best at what they do. Yeah, it's funny you sort of mentioned that. It's, I had a, um, a junior sort of person that was working on the weekends and at WSFM and they were leaving and I sort of said, what are you off to? You know, what are you doing? And they said, oh, I'm just going to work Monday to Friday. You know, I'm, I'm sick of work, working weekends. So I said, all oh, right. How long have you been working weekends for? <laughs> 12 months. <laughs> she said, how long have you been working weekends for? I said, 21 years. <laughs> it's um, it's just one of the things. Like, the things that you have to do, like, if that's what you want to do, you have to be committed to it. But going back to, to your situation, obviously, how we mentioned you came in the door to, to GB to um, work on the on the cricket, do the updates there, and then obviously once you're able to sort of show your wares, they then offer you more opportunities. So 
then it was the newsroom for you that was sort of um, your stable there for a while before you sort of took on all of these other things that you're currently doing? Yeah, I just started um, reading the sport a couple of days during the week and then doing the sport for the continuous call team on the weekend, so the half-hourly updates and then the news on the top of the hour, which was a, a great grounding and great practice. I mean, I listened to some of the first times I read the news and I think, oh, jeez. <laughs> How bad was I? Uh, and then, you know, to, to this day, you're a little bit more polished and you've had a lot of practice and you get a bit of constructive feedback, criticism along the way from people like John Brennan and, and Ray himself and Aaron Ma, the news director, and then Rachel Stevens, who employed me. Um, so, yeah, yeah, you just sort of practice. Practice makes perfect, Ralphie, as I always say. And I, I, I read the news for about seven and a half years before I was given an opportunity to host programs. Uh, and you see a lot of people these days that get sort of thrown in the deep end and it's either sink or swim. And I really appreciate the grounding that I got doing the news because I think that's held me in good stead. What did you learn from that kind of experience, though, that you had to turn up every day and you had to be ready to be on a bulletin every hour or if there was breaking news you'd take it into the the studio and different things like that what was that like for you to just be that guy that was delivering the sports news that was around for that particular day it's pretty full-on I mean especially weekends that's when you really prove your stripes as doing the sport because um, you've got live live sport happening so you know you can't really pre-prepare your bulletin it's sort of gap at the top for cricket, gap at the top for rugby league, whatever's on at that time of the day, and then a couple of other stories at the bottom that are from overseas. So, you know, nine times out of 10, 30 seconds before the bulletin, you're, you're writing and cutting audio and all that sort of thing and racing into the booth to read it. And I'm sure, Ralphie, you've had many a times where you've walked into the booth and opened the prompter and where's the sport gone? How many times have we had to ad-lib around whatever's happening? And uh, that, 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 holds you, that holds you in... in you know, a great position for when you later in life do the do the programs and the like when you think, well, I've written my opener, there's breaking news with a whatever's happening around the world and you've just got to start talking about it. So how did you deal with that pressure when things didn't particularly go well? Because everybody has their own way of doing things. You can't just sort of sit there in radio silence. Do you want the you honest answer? Something. Do you want the honest answer? Mm. A lot of swearing. <laughs> And, and a lot of people that know me, yes, I, I do have a bit of a potty mouth on me, so to speak, uh, when the when the shit hits the fan, and um, you know, but but that's just what comes with it. And you know, you you hear people that work in newsrooms down. Oh, could you mind your swearing, please? It's pressure. I mean, you deal with pressure differently. I mean, the job gets done, but you know, there's a couple of expletives that let fly when shit. Where's the where's the news? Where's the where's the bulletin that I've just prepared for the last fifteen minutes? But oh well. You just move on. And how much do you hate the question, what do you do between bulletins? Oh. <laughs> if, if, if I had a dollar for every time that was asked of me, I think I'd be a millionaire. And, you, and you'd know the same. Oh, what do you do in between? You're preparing for the next one. And later, later in, in life, as I started doing all these different shows, um, most of the time in between bulletins is recording, recording interviews, organising interviews for the other shows that I'm doing. So I'm, I'm usually one of the hardest working people in between a news bulletin and it gets five minutes before the news and I think, oh, shit, I haven't written anything. I better put something together and away we go. Did you find it difficult to make that transition from the guy that's just updating the sport? So you might have 60 seconds or on the weekends you might have 90 seconds to then having to go in a, to a elongated format where you're the host of the show and you're running things and then, you know, you've got interviews and then they might not come through and then, you know, you've got to 
act on the run. What was that transition like for you? I think the hardest hardest transition is um, is dealing with the, the people that you're on air with because I went from you know reading the news by myself to having to host a show with people like Daryl Broman and Steve Roach, um, you know Mark Riddell, Aaron Mullen, all these different people, and you know you you know what they like talking about, you know what they don't like talking about, so. It's it's not not as not so much dealing with the longer format because I mean I've always been able to talk. You, you ask my mother and father, mm. you know, I'd give a Panadol a headache when I was a kid. Um, and, I believe and, that. Yeah, thank you very much, Ralph. You're a wonderful man. <laughs> and yeah, it, it's just you know, you, as I say, you learn from your mistakes, things that you do, people like things that you do, people don't like, and you know, my, my attitude is if well you don't like it, bad luck. But if the boss is telling me, nut, nah, you're doing this wrong. Then I listen. But if some gibber is saying, "Oh, mate, I don't like you doing this show," well, I just say, "Well, what time does your show start?" How hard? Is As it? you've probably seen on Twitter recently, Ralphie. Yes, I've seen that a couple of times. We've had a good Twitter battles over recent times. But how do you deal with that? Oh, look, I'll stick. I stick up for myself. I just don't cop it. You know, if someone wants to go on social media and call me a, you know, a, a gibbering idiot that doesn't know what he's talking about, well, I'll ask for an explanation. You know, it's just these keyboard warriors that want to attack me. You know, I've worked hard to get to where I am, and now you have a platform to get on social media and abuse me. Well, I'm sorry. I'm just not going to cop it. I'll, I'll ask the question. But when you talk about social media, as a sports reporter, and I don't know whether you find this, I think social media has become a very, very good tool for a lot of sports reporters around the country. Oh, it's it's the modern-day AAP news feed, as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely. Uh, it, it is a great tool for in that breaking news situation that you can rely on to do that, but it's also become, from a general public point of view, just a haven for narcs. Oh, that's not what. Have you had any Twitter abuse yet, Ralphie? I'm fortunate that what I do is that I don't necessarily have to put up with that, but I can understand where it's coming from because... Would you be the sort of person, though, sorry to turn this around to the Media Mates podcast on Ralphie, mm. but would you attack? Would you, would you stick up for yourself or would you just cop it and ignore it? If I had a valid reason to, or if somebody was attacking me in an, a reason that, that wasn't valid, I would definitely fire back. You yeah. know? The, the, the greatest tool that you have in your situation is truth. So if there's no truth to what they're saying, you're going to be able to fire back and be able to touch them up in a way that says, right, well, what I'm actually saying is right. And the other the other way is if they've got something that is that they've called you out on a mistake or whatever, fair play to them. You Absolutely. Know? And, um, and, and if I make a mistake, I'll put my hand up and say, yep, fair enough. Fair, you, you got me 100%. I apologise. But I find that with emails and with Twitter, if someone wants to attack me for something that I've said, as soon as I fire back at them in an email or a Twitter message or whatever, they just go to water and are not expecting the reply. Mm. And they, they, you know, they, they usually well, they say, don't oh, no, think you're a real person. Well, they say, oh, no, we're a big fan. Oh, you know, we listen all the time, blah, blah, blah. And I think to myself, well, who in their right mind sits there and goes, oh, well, I'm going to go onto social media and say Mark Levy is the most overrated, you know, sports broadcaster, blah, 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 blah. Who does that? I mean, Nuts. in my life, in my life, you know, I've never put up a, a, a tweet abusing another member of the media or whatever. Yes, because of what I do, I might put up there that Chris Sando shouldn't be appearing in court in, in shorts and a T-shirt, or as I put it, a, a singlet, to which somebody said, well, it's not a singlet, it's a T-shirt, which then spiral out of control into a Twitter war. I mean, really, people, there are bigger issues in society today than arguing over whether somebody's wearing a T-shirt or a singlet on Twitter. 
You're with me, Ralphie. I'm with you there. I think that, you know, like I said, it's Twitter in, in some respects has just be, become a haven for narcs that have nothing to, better to do in their lives you and know, point out inaccuracies. You know what it is good, good about Twitter? When there's nothing on TV, you can spark a war. <laughs> so let's talk about some of your career achievements in terms of going to two Olympic Games what was that like to go, first of all, to go to Beijing, which I imagine would have been an amazing experience, and then on to London as well? Well, first thing, I'm petrified of flying, so. Really? <laughs> yeah, I hate, I can't. I, made, I, I sweat profusely and think the world is going to end when I'm getting on a plane to Melbourne or Queensland to Brisbane, which is where my mum lives now. Um, so that was the first obstacle to overcome. But it, it required. How did you deal with that? Uh-huh. How did I deal with it? Mate, I took uh, two sleeping tablets and a Valium to get to London, stayed awake the whole way. They referred to me as a medical marvel. Uh, Beijing uh, sat next to me, sat next to one of my colleagues and broke their hand because I was squeezing it too hard at takeoff and landing. Who? Uh, Nat Peters, Natalie right. Peters. Right. Uh, she'll tell you that story when you interview her on the Media Mates podcast. She's already been on, mate. Sorry about that. I haven't caught up with that one. You need uh, to listen, mate. <laughs> but uh, no, 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 Olympics are great. And, you know, it's it's... Unlike television where you've got, you know, 1,200 people working on the coverage, I think we had 12. Yes. So you get thrust into the deep end. I think I found myself calling the BMX, um, the diving, all these random sports. And London was good because I got to host the coverage. Ray Ray said, um, you know, I'm just going to focus on calling the big events. I want you to, to anchor the coverage. So it was, um, it, was, it was good fun. It was fun, a lot of pressure, a long hours. Like sometimes I was doing 13 and a half hours straight on air without a break. You know, people who bring in McDonald's into the area, which is where we're broadcasting, and I'd say, hello, I haven't had a bite to eat in 12 hours. Can someone get me a cheeseburger? Um, but, yeah, it was a great experience. Doesn't look like you would have missed a cheeseburger, though. Thanks, Ralph. Brad Pitt, fair <laughs> I spent a lot of money getting this big. How much money do you spend getting uh, an arsehole? Uh, <laughs> it sounds like you've got the, the script ready to go Correct. for the insults. Yeah, yeah all good. But um, in looking at something like that where – the world is actually watching and, and, and listening to what you have to say. I mean, there must be a certain sort of buzz or oh, yeah. uh, satisfaction you get out of anchoring a, a coverage that you know that's going to be listened to by so many people because the Olympic Games come around once every four years and everybody pretty much in Australia is interested in, in yeah. what is happening. And the great thing about the, the radio coverage, and, and you're right, I did feel... I did feel that there was a buzz. You know, there's always a buzz around the Olympics, and because we were were rights holders, we had a lot of the Olympians coming in to be interviewed. So we got to hold the gold medals, wear the gold medals, silver, bronze, whatever they were. Um, and and I think, that, and John Singleton says this: the beauty about the radio coverage of the Olympic Games is that whereas our television friends would be focusing their attention on whether it be netball or, or, or not netball, hockey. Say, for instance, you know, over at the sailing, you might have a qualification race for a gold medal. So we'd go and switch our attention to that. You can just chop and change, or as television, sort of stick with one thing. And I think that's where the radio coverage leaves leaves television for dead and, and why a lot of people tune into the radio coverage. I guess it comes back to the whole immediacy thing again. Yeah, exactly. Um, people are wanting to find out when, now, what is actually happening rather than waiting for some kind of... Uh, replay on a loop. Well, I'll, I'll give you a, a situation that I remember. Um, there was uh, there was a I'm trying to think of a name that's that's hopeless of me. It was at the velodrome, 
Victoria Pendleton, the Australian... Anamiz. Anamiz. Victoria Pendleton, Anamiz. Sorry, Anna. Um, Anamiz, Victoria Pendleton, the first... So they have the three races for the gold medal. The first race, um, her nemesis, the Australian girl's nemesis, was this English girl. And there was interference as they swung into the straight and the commissaires, which is virtually the referees, took the race off the English girl who won the first one. So uh, Anamiz went one up in the gold medal race. In the meantime, we had a gold medal, I think, rowing race on at the same time. Yep. So we're in the midst of ex- describing that and then throwing back to, I think, Matthew Hill was calling the rowing and Ray was at the athletics. So we've gone from that to Matthew Hill at the rowing to Ray at the athletics who had whatever it was, an Australian on the track doing whatever, coming back to me to do the cycling. It's, it's just amazing having to cover three potential gold medals for Australia at an Olympics in the space of, what, three and a half minutes. It was, it was just crazy. Do you get off air at the end of the day and just think, gee, I did that well or I didn't do that well or, geez, I'm exhausted after doing all of that? You get off air and you think, how the hell did you do that? Because it's long and it's it's at sometimes you know you have your little meltdowns in the in the booth. And Michael Thompson, who's Ray, who was Ray's executive producer, now working for Two UE Talking Lifestyle, he um he knew that I was I had my little moments where I'd you know start abusing myself and because you know you you're working long hours and you you're not getting much sleep. You know we, we were getting average three and a half four hours sleep a night. Um, and, yeah, you get on the bus with everybody and you sort of have a debrief, you have a laugh, get back to the hotel, get to bed as soon as you can, and then you're in the next day to do it all over again. In that sort of situation, are you looking constantly at the end date or are you able to enjoy the moment for what it is when it's actually occurring? I think you enjoy it at the end of the Olympics. You, you enjoy it more looking back at what you've just done, whereas when, when you, like I was describing with the Melbourne tragedy on Friday, you sort of go into autopilot, automation, and, you know, you, you know what you're doing, but you, at the end of the day, you're doing a job. You're enjoying a job. But at the end of the Olympics, I look back at Beijing and London and think the best experiences of my life, you know, working with, with people like Ray, learning and, you know, sitting a metre away from him when he's calling Steve Hooker's gold medal at the Beijing Olympics. I've never seen a bloke get more excited than, than Ray Hadley when he was calling that amazing gold medal, and I, and I think it was one of his great calls. Um, and then working with people like Gordon Bray, the voice of rugby union, and he's sitting there calling a sailing race, tacking and all this sort of thing. You know, I've, I've never stepped foot on a sailboat, and he's sitting there commentating. Um, and then, you know, sitting at a, at a lunchroom, and Ray saying, and I say to, said to Ray, oh, there's some BMX coming up after we get back to the, the International Broadcast Centre. Who do you want to do that? And he just says, oh, you can do that. BMX? I've never called BMX racing in my life. So going back, reading the rule book, learning it quickly, and then just doing your best. How important is in that situation to be given the confidence from somebody that you can actually do it even though you may not necessarily know what you're talking about. You sort of pride yourself on the preparation part of it, but sometimes there isn't time for that preparation. What's that like having to step into that situation, which is a, a virtual unknown in many ways? No, it's, it's, it's scary and you're on air while doing it. That, that cycling race that I mentioned with Anna Mears and Victoria Pendleton, I was learning the rules of cycling as, as it was unfolding. So, you know, we had a commentator at the velodrome and up on the little digital screen next to us, it had uh, disqualified. So I'm trying to work out, you know, what's going on. Obviously, disqualification means a disqualification, but, you know, just, just little things. And, and you get found out, like referring... I could have sat there and said, oh, the referees are looking at this. 
but just little things like knowing that they're called commissaires in cycling and not referees. You know, if, if you've got people listening, and at the end of the day, we're the number one station in the country, you, you want you, you want people listening in and, and you want people on air that know what they're talking about. So you, you do the extra work. You, you learn little things like commissaires and, and protests and, and what happens with that sort of thing. So, And, and that's why I think... 2GB won awards and, and, and did extremely well with Olympic coverage because we had some great commentators. I'm not putting myself in that basket, but I'm talking about, you know, Ray and Gordon Bray and Matthew Hill and some of the, some of the great broadcasters. Matt Thompson from Melbourne, who excelled doing basketball. He had some great commentary of basketball. It was, it was fantastic just to be a part of it. The continuous call team has been something that's been a, a Sydney radio, again, I'll sort of use this word again, institution for rugby league over 30-odd years now. What's that like being in that position where you're now, Ray, sort of taking a, a, a step back, as it were? You're now pretty much the, the primary host of the, the broadcast on, on weekends. How do you enjoy that kind of thing? Because it's taken a different direction, well, it has for a number of years, when it's more about the entertainment side of things mm-hmm. rather than the footy. When the footy's on, you'll call the footy. But, yeah, yeah. like, the show has evolved to a point where it's, about everything else, bar rugby league. What's it like stepping into that situation and hosting that kind of program? Well, it's nerve-wracking because you're right, at, and you, the, the word institution is 100% right. It has been an institution, and, you know, people talk about listening to it as a kid and, and growing up and, and and their kids listening to it, and, and, and that, that's why I think it, it's been so successful because we, we have a lot of fun. You know, we, we do it... Uh, we talk about rubbish, but when it comes to the football, everyone has an opinion, and we've got some very, very strong opinions on the program. And immortal in Bob Fulton, Daryl Roman, the big man, who you know is funny, but can but has still forged a, an illustrious career in rugby league. And then you know, younger the younger brigade like Piggy Riddell. Uh, we had Brett Finch on the coverage last year. We had Mark Gasnier a part of it as well, and Erin uh, Mullen joining us this year. So it's um it, it's great. And I mean, it was. Ray's brainchild and Ray's made a, a success and we're under no illusions, you know. It's Ray Hadley's continuous call team. It's, it's nobody else's. And, um, you know, it's, hosting it comes with a lot of pressure and you've just got to sort of know what works and what doesn't work. And the, the hardest part with that show is controlling everybody because, you know, Ray drums into me, you've got to control them, and which is what he does so well. And, you know, when you're telling an immortal that, you know, we've gone too far and we've got to move on, it can be a little bit... Um, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with those personalities in a different situation? Because obviously Ray's got this uh, presence that he's built up over the years that he's been the one guy that's been in charge and he's obviously had that respect from whoever it may have been at that time that's in the box, whereas, you know, you're the Johnny-come-lately to these guys, yeah. you know. Um, how, do, how do you deal with that situation? You're a different personality in yourself yeah. um, and you're... You've still got those same responsibilities in terms of ad breaks, and you need to get away different things that you have to do on a broadcast. What's that that been like for you? I think the 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 best thing that I was told by Ray was just turn them off, <laughs> and, and that's that's not meaning to be rude, but if if it gets too much, just turn them off, just turn the microphones off. And sometimes we use it to be funny, but sometimes you know it does get a little bit too too much, and we reach a point where it may offend somebody and. You just turn them off and move on. And, and you're right about commercial breaks. We sort of get stuck into a conversation and having a laugh and you think, well, geez, we've got to get another three breaks out in the next 15 minutes before the news, which doesn't give us a lot of time. And, um, yeah, but, but it's a lot of – it comes with – there's a lot of pressure that comes with the job, but there's a lot of enjoyment that comes with the job. The first 12 months was a bit of a, 
uh, a transition period for me as, as such because I had to build the respect of the people I was working with, you know, or just some young bloke sitting there hosting the show. But I think now that the boys, you know, if I say to them enough that they they respect me and say, okay, well, Levy said enough, so we stop. So you've also had the the evolution of the program as well in terms of the experts. I mean, Blocker was a, a long-time person that, were, that was there alongside uh, Bozo and then there was Ray and then there was um, Tony McGay who reco- uh, retired a few years ago now. But you've now got these new people that are invo- coming through at the same time you are. As I said, Ray's sort of taking a bit of a, a backward sort of seat. You're there. You've got Mark Riddell and you've got um, David Morrow that's become the, the second caller to Ray when Andrew Moore moved to the ABC. So I guess you've been able to slot in that situation where there's been a, a period of change. Yeah, and, I mean, you talk about Thirsty. I mean, we, we sort of gang up on Thirsty a bit, but, you know, having spent all the 47 years or whatever it was at the ABC where he just had to talk rugby league, it's amazing seeing a, a bloke who was respected in rugby league come over to commercial radio, have to add things like, you know, uh, scoreboard sponsors and <laughs> video referee sponsors. Uh, that was a bit of a juggling act for him, but he's been a breath of fresh air for the continuous call team. Daryl absolutely loves him. Uh, there's a bromance developing between Daryl and Thirsty to little the little things like when Thirsty arrives... Broman will give him a kiss. When they're sitting next to each other calling the football, they'll hold hands. It's it's just beautiful to watch, Ralphie. <laughs> it's amazing to watch this little bromance unfold uh, and develop. And it's good for me because I'm only 32 and dealing with, you know, Piggy Riddell, who I watched as a young bloke growing up, you know, playing St. George Lawara, playing, playing for St. George Lawara and, and all these different clubs that he had, more clubs than Greg Norman, Roosters, Parramatta, went over to the English Super League. It, it's great. And and it's, as I say, a bit of a transition period with a bit of new blood coming into the continuous call team, but there's still that, there's still the idea of, yes, we have fun, but rugby league is the priority and, and that's what we fall back on. And then there's also calling the action as well, which you've done for quite a few years now. You used to do it with Joel Kane and more, more recent times, Chris Warren. What's that like for you to actually have to not necessarily just be the guy that's reading the sport? but you're not hosting the show, but you're actually calling the live action as well. Well, I, I sort of – I've learned, I learned a lot of that from, from people like Andrew Moore and, and from Ray himself because I used to go to the football with Andrew and I'd, I'd stand behind Ray when he was calling and you'd pick up little things. And I'd, I've picked up some stuff from Andrew. I've picked up some stuff from Ray who I worked um, closely with over a number of years. But you then have to put your own little spin on things and – I just saw, because I do the co-commentary with, with Chris and I did the co-commentary with Joel. Um, and, you know, I'm not an ex, I'm not a rugby league expert. I, I refereed the game. That was as far as an expert I was. So I'm very careful not to, to be too hard on players if they make a mistake. But at the end of the day, I am there to be a co-commentator. So I get my sense of humor in there, you know, color things up a little bit. Um, you know, that's it, it, another little challenge and one that we've sort of mastered over time because well, I've been doing it a little while now. Um, but uh, I thought Joel Kane was a fantastic caller, and he still is on television. And Chris Warren, the son of Ray Warren, you know, great pedigree there. And he's doing a fantastic job. It's just good fun. And then going into more recent times, in fact, this summer, going down the, the cricket path and having to adjust to <laughs> that situation where you're dealing with experts for the like of Ian Chappell and Greg Matthews, because now... 2UE is owned by the same yeah. uh, joint as, as 2GB, Macquarie Media, so you've had to 
slot across and, and do that. What's that? What's that been like? Well, they for threw you? me in the deep end there. Management gave me a call one day and said, "We want you to call the Big Bash." And I thought, "Oh, geez, how do I do that?" Um, so, and then rocking up to my first first game, sitting next to a bloke who I've watched on television all my life in Ian Chapel, <laughs> Godfather of cricket. It, it's uh, yeah, it was very very nerve wracking, and I had to pinch myself a couple of times. But um, how do you break the ice in that situation, like with people that obviously you've seen on TV for hundreds of years, mm. with all due but respect just, to Chappelle? But to and, be and honest, also, Ralphie, I'm just myself. You know, I just I shake the hand, have a chat to him. You know, I'm working with a legend of the game. You know, who the hell am I? If they want to speak, they speak. It's just pretty much as simple as that. And if they show an interest in things, I, I think our first conversation, Chappelle and I, was about um, a dog that he, uh, his dog that died, and um, her name was Bella. And we've got a dog at, at my place and who's Bella. And then that was just a sort of a, a natural thing that developed into a conversation about dogs, and all of a sudden we're on air talking about cricket. It's just, I'm just myself, and, you know, whether I'm not, I've got a warm person, I don't know. I, I don't know what it is, but I just seem to get along with people and have a laugh and I don't take myself too seriously. So would that be, you would consider that like one of your strengths, the fact that you're able to be adaptable in any given circumstance? Well, Ralphie, I've got a very interesting mix of friends. I know criminals, I know cops, I know judges, I know prosecutors, I know Carmody, I know <laughs> Little Stewie, I know you. I mean, it's I just get along with everybody and, you know, yeah, that's, that's just me. I, I just meet people in all different walks of life and know how to, to adjust to the situation. Do you think that that's been advantageous in your now ability to be given the opportunity to do an afternoon program, which you've discussed about? You're able to bring all of these experiences together and then talk about them. Yeah, I, I, I guess so. Um, I must admit, I wasn't, I wasn't expecting to do the afternoon show and the CEO and it rang me and said, oh, we, we want to give you a go. It's been discussed. We want to give you a go on the afternoon show over summer. I only did a couple of weeks. Um, what was it like? It was, it was different. It was, it was In different. In what way? Just talking, just talking about general issues rather than the rubbish that we talk about on the weekend and, and entertaining, whereas this is, this is actually issues that people want to discuss. I mean, I got a bit fired up about the anarchist Greens that wanted to burn the Australian flag and, you know, I, I just... Again, I was just myself, and if something angered me, I got angry. If something made me upset, I got upset. There was one day, it was the 40th commemorations of the Granville train disaster. That was in 1977. I was born in 1984. So I'm only having to talk about something that happened when I wasn't alive. So I, I didn't tell fibs. I just said, look, folks, I wasn't alive. I'm, I'm going off your stories. And we had a full board of calls. We had a bloke who rang up. He was the last surviving person to be pulled from the disaster. And, um, it, you know, it was full on, but it was, I thought it was great radio because people were sharing their stories and I was just listening to their stories and, and reacting to what they were saying. How important is that part of the job of what you do is, like, listening? It seems as though there's a lot of people out there that are willing to talk, but there's not a lot of people that actually take the time to listen. Has that been something that you've been able to develop over time? It's a very good question, Ralphie, and, and I think that's probably what's, what's made me as a person listening. Seriously, listening. I, I've listened to so many people from all walks of life and I've learned a lot from them and that's made me the person I am today and that's a bit of a serious statement to make, but it is. You know, learning from the people I met in racing, learning from the people that I deal with in radio, it's made me the person and the, the broadcaster type person I am today. Having to adjust from sports guy to general news guy to 
weekend rugby league guy to co-host with Aaron Mullen on the weekend. Alcoholic at the North Annandale yeah. Hotel, which is where we're currently sitting and Poker Machine 4 just got the feature, put 50 in it the other night. I hope it's not my money just going off. How do you like adjust the, the gears from day to day, from shift to shift? Because as we said, we, you, you're a busy guy during any normal week, month, year. You know, what's, what's that like for you? Like, you know, do you get the opportunity to ever sort of completely switch off from work? No. No, I've got I've got about ninety nine days of annual leave up my sleeve, and a holiday for me is about two or three days off. Um, you know, I, I don't travel overseas because of my fear of flying. I a holiday for me is up or down the coast of New South Wales, and I I've got a mate that owns a pub down the south coast, Chalhaven Eds. God love you, Colin Waller, and he always says, you know, the door's always open. So I go down there and you know whatever, sit out the back, get on the drink, go fishing, whatever, go to the beach, or go up to a, another friend's place up on Nelson Bay. And he always looks after us up there as well. There's a few pubs around town. So it's just switching off for me is just getting getting away and, you know, not reading a paper. But, you know, your, your phone's always going off from work. Your phone's always going off from people or contacts with stories or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I am I am busy, but I'd, I'd much rather be busy than not doing anything. Talk to me about living with jockey Tim Clark. Aha, uh-huh. and I noticed you've been doing some research. I know. I tried to get some research. He wouldn't give me any dirt, though. Let me just uh, let me just pull up the little message that was sent to Jockey Clark this morning, and God love Clarky. And you know that I am his solid. world's biggest fan. You are. By, you know, from the the days of Hot Danish to his most recent Group One win in 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 WA. He got Mate, me, I'm all aboard. He got me out of Clark. He got me out of some strife at Canterbury midweek meeting the other day. <laughs> I was doing about 500. He rode the last winner. I ended up square. God love oh, you, Clarky. He's the most informed jockey in the country at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Need some dirt on Mark Levy. Got a few crumbs for me, Clarky. His response: Hmm, payback is a bitch, though. I've got, <laughs> You've more, got sto- more stories. I've on got him. more stories on him than he's got on me. <laughs> oh, look, we uh, we lived together at Coogee. He he's a country boy. He li- he grew up down near Juneau. Um, and when he first, I did a story on him when I was at Sky Racing. And when he first moved to Sydney, we just caught up with it for a beer, and um, he just started flying. Bought a little unit at Coogee, which is where I was living, and. My grandparents who I were living with passed away and I needed somewhere to live. And he said, oh, come and live with me. So I lived with him for a few years and it was great. He he wouldn't eat much. Listening to Carmody talk about his brother Craig, who was a very good jockey, talking about the, the diet. Friday nights, I would always cook a baked dinner because I knew he couldn't eat. So I'd serve up my baked dinner and I'd put a little oh. pea and a half a carrot on a little saucer and take it over for him and say, enjoy that, Clarky. In the meantime, he's, you know, sucking on an ice cube and having a sayo with a little smidge of margarine on it. But that, we just got along because, you know, we had fun. And then Saturday night we go to the Coogee Bay Hotel or the the, uh, the Palace, which is now the Pavilion, and, and run amok. Doesn't sound like you much running amok. No, but it was always good because it was an easy shout with Clarky. It'd only take him two and he was legless and he'd have to go home. So I'd stay out and have a good time. <laughs> Right, we'll wrap things up in a sec, but before we go, uh, as is usual here, I want to get some advice from you about anyone that's looking to break into the industry. We sort of touched on the, the weekend work and the ability to sort of produce a, a decent work, work ethic, which is what's required in media. What would you say to somebody that's looking to get a start or, you know, forge a career in, in, in media in 2017? Keep knocking on the door until you get a foot in the door. That's that's the biggest advice I can give. Keep emailing, um, keep ringing people and just be persistent. Knock on doors until someone says, come and do some work experience. And when you get the opportunity to do work experience, do it, learn from the people that are around you. And then, you know, like I said, take little bits and pieces from people that you meet 
and who you learn from and hopefully you can develop a successful career because, you know, there's all these university courses that people can do, but I think the best training you can do is on the job and that's through work experience and through um, hopefully whether you start as a, a cleaner, whether you start as the, the bloke who fills up the printer, whatever. It's a foot in the door and then that could lead to, you never know what it, what it could lead to. You, who knows, you could be the next Ray Hadley or Alan Jones. Mark Levy is the next flight leaves for Thailand over the North Annandale Hotel. Thanks very much for your time. That's the 745 Tiger Air flight from Bali. I know they don't exist anymore. Thank you, Ralphie. This has been an absolute pleasure. There he is, Mark Levy from 2GB. If you really enjoyed my chat today with Mark, please let him know by sending him a tweet. He's at Mark Levy 2GB. As you've heard, he loves getting involved in a bit of Twitter banter. You can also follow us on Twitter, which is at MediaMatesAU. Check out the Facebook page. Most importantly, if you could subscribe in iTunes, that'd be great. It means you won't miss an episode. While you're there, please leave a rating or review. That way, more people will learn about the show. Until next time, I'm Ralph Tucker, and this has been the Media Mates Podcast. Media Mates Podcast.